You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that is not going to let you borrow its book because when I let you borrow Artemis Fowl and the Eternity Code, you returned it with a broken spine, you absolute monster. So no, Bobby, no more books for you, motherfucker. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. Today we're doing another special patron-requested episode, specifically one patron, specifically John. Who's what we're s- finally doing? Let's make a deal. No, that's a. That's a TV show, oh, I think. We're, we're doing... Wait, no, Deal or No Deal is Let's Make a Deal a TV show? Oh, uh, you're young. Yes, yes it yeah. was. Yeah, I'm Although sorry, I think I'm, not d- the, I'm not the fucking crypt keeper like you. John is the second person to have pledged to our substitute teacher tier. Try saying that three times fast. Substitute teacher tier, three times fast. And he asked us to take a look at a 70s YA novel that he read in junior high. Now he's old. I don't know that he went to junior high in the 70s. I mean, I read a lot, as I'm going to talk about, I, I read a lot of 70s books around that time as well. Because I think junior high is just middle school, right? Yeah. Like, it's just how old people say middle school. Sorry, John. Maybe it's a regional thing. Maybe it's not an old people thing. Oh, like pop? <laughs> yeah, like, like soda pop. It's just weird. People who say pop sound like they're from like the 1950s or something. The Rust Gotta go Belt. down to the malt shop and get a pop. Yeah, well, the Rust Belt is trapped in the 1950s, making America great again. Ayy. 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 You should cut that. Either way, today we're talking about Pardon Me, You're Stepping on My Eyeball by Paul Zindel. I have two. Well, I'm only going to step on one of them. I might step on both of them if you keep this shit up. Not my testes. Pardon me, you're stepping on my testes by R.J. Ono Litclass. So I, uh, John gave me a, a thing to read. He says, my pick is one of my all-time favorite required readings from junior high. And he says, it's a very post-Salinger, Judy Bloom contemporary late 70s YA fiction, which, uh, having read it, accurate. And uh, he says, I'd like to dedicate it to the memory of Elaine... Oh God, I don't know if this is Petricone or Petricone. Should have asked, maybe. I guess John will tell me if I fucked it up. I'm going to say Elaine Petricone. Elaine Bennis. My 7th and 8th grade English teacher, in whose class I did reports on this book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Starship Troopers. That's fucking rad. This teacher sounds awesome. She was the toughest teacher I ever had, and her class made me miserable while I was in it, but she taught me more about literature and language than the subsequent eight years of high school and college did. Rest in peace, Miss Petricone slash Petricone. Hashtag fuck cancer. So, that was from John. You really shouldn't fuck cancer. Just fuck it. Now, prior to this, I'd never read this book or even heard of it, and I'm fairly certain you have not either, because if I haven't heard it, you haven't heard of it. As we'll discuss, I think I might have read one of his other books. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with his more famous novel, The Pigman. Yeah. Oh, okay, you think you read The Pigman? I believe so. I have not, but I know of it. I have read his play, which got adapted into a movie and, and other things, The Effects of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. I think it also won, like, the Pulitzer Prize for drama and stuff. I would say that's probably the most well-known thing he's done. Also, just want to note, John sent us a copy, which was extremely convenient and much appreciated. Thank you, John. No thank yous to Mackenzie, who sent us a haunted Michael Crichton novel that every time I try to throw it away, it reappears on my desk. But uh, yeah, reading it, I was like immediately slammed in the face with nostalgia because I used to read 
stuff like this all the time when I was in middle school, like all that good, good vintage YA. Your Judy Blooms, your Robert Cormiers, your Lois Lowry's, Ellen Raskins, etc. For whatever reason, my school library's YA section did not go past 1990. <laughs> now, at some point, are we going to discuss the kink scene that's depicted on the cover of the book? I'm gonna say it makes more sense in the context of the novel, but it kind of doesn't. Um, people on Patreon, when they got to see the unboxing, got to see the cover, which is a girl blindfolded reaching out to touch uh, a raccoon being held by the boy in front of her. Yeah. I can at least explain it. But yeah, no, I, I don't know how I managed to miss out on Zindel, especially when he's considered just as influential as Bloom, Lori, and even old Essie Hinton. But uh, here we are. So, RJ? What's up? Rectify this situation. Tell me of... Paul Zindel. Well, Mr. Paul Zindel Jr., born May 15, 1936, and died March 27, 2003. You won't believe this, but he was born to, hold on, Paul Zindel Sr. Oh, if he's Paul Zindel Jr., I mean, it stands to reason. Who saw that coming? <laughs> Wowza. Yes, even contemporary authors are not safe, are not exempt from being named after their parents. And Betty Zindel. He had a sister. She was named, now this is where it really gets tricky, Betty. Really? Yeah. So they just named both their kids after each other. Yeah, so there you go. One for dad, one for mom. It would have been really awkward if they had two sons or two daughters. Would you rather be a woman named Paul or a man named Betty? Well, if you're a woman, you could just be Pauline. No, you gotta be Paul. You could be Pauline, though. No, you gotta be Paul Jr. What would be a masculine version of Betty? Bet. Yeah, just bet. Bet. <laughs> Always bet on bet. All right, this is terrible. Continue. Anyway, <laughs> Paul Sr. was an officer of the law, like Judge Dredd. And Betty Sr. was a nurse, like Nurse Ratchet. How do you know she was like Nurse Ratchet? Uh, she was a nurse. That's a, Yeah, and that's the first thing you come up with? Look. Hmm, nurses. Uh, the evil one from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Aren't you happy when I think of cops? I think Judge Dredd. Actually, yes. Now, unlike most of the authors here on Ono oh Class who take pilgrimages to New York City at some point in their lives. He was born there? Junior was born right into it. Specifically, Junior was born in the Tottenville neighborhood of Staten Island, which is the southernmost point of New York City. Just to give context to those of you who are not all up on your New York City geography, this means he was born south and west of a good part of New Jersey because New York City is shaped and it's drawn like it was constructed by a bunch of idiots. To give Megan a very insider explanation, since we recently stayed in Jersey City, New Jersey, Tottenville is 40 minutes south and west of where we were. And that's still considered New York, huh? Yep. It's basically the equivalent of Miami and West Palm Beach being part of the same city. Yeah, that's fucking weird. Well, New York City's like that. It's it's far bigger than a city has any right to be. Yeah. Mr. 305? More like Mr. 305 954 561, also known as the Dalve to Delhi connection. Wow, you worked real hard on that, didn't you? He's looking at me like right now for validation. Like, did I do good? Did I do good? You sure listed a bunch of area codes that not everyone might be familiar Dale. with. Dalve. God damn it. Geography actually played a big part in Junior's life, insofar that Paul Sr.'s geographical location changed when Junior was two because he ran away with a mistress leaving Betty Sr. with the two juniors to fend for themselves. The geography didn't change. His dad left. <laughs> His, His geography, geography remained in the same place. Well, shouldn't have let that happen. You're a horrible human being. Betty Sr. did the best she could to raise those two kids. 
They moved houses on the reg up and down Staten Island, which you now understand is huge as fuck. Junior came up through the public school system and he took to writing early on. He wrote his first play when he was in high school. I also assume he was a bit of a nerd as his favorite subject was chemistry. Who the fuck studies chemistry? Nerds. People who probably go on to better careers than what we have. You never see the cool kids studying chemistry. Actually, on that point, Meg, allow me to point out that during my academic career, I studied in almost every department that exists. This is true. RJ uh, had a hard time sort of finding his passion in In, college. (laughs) In fact, quick RJ tidbit. My best subject, math, by far. But math people, nerds. I'm not a nerd. I'm also more socially adept than but historians. You're, but you're best at math, which means you're a nerd. But I'm more socially adept than historians, but I'm not anal or driven enough to hang with the doctors of today. So yeah, junior studying chemistry, I know the type. What do you mean? You just said that you studied math and history. In pre-med. You were pre-med at one point too? Yeah. That's what I just said. Jeez, well, you didn't... I couldn't hang with yeah, them. Okay, but... They were anal and just weird. And <laughs> so driven. you ended up with the English majors, presumably doing a bunch of drugs, because that's what the English majors do. After high school, he attended Wagner College. I don't hear a no. Which is located in... Drumroll, please. New York City? Staten Island. Oh, well, yeah, specifically. So Wagner... Didn't, didn't go too far, huh? Uh, that's the thing. So Wagner College, not exactly the most illustrious... I want you all to know that I really poured over their list of notable alums. And well, here's the best I could come up with. (laughs) Tiffany Andrade, a former Miss New Jersey and second runner-up Miss USA. Brad Corbett, the guy who owns the Texas Rangers. And Dan Mullen, the head football coach of your University of Florida Gators. Go Gators. They're not my University of Florida Gators. I guess Wagner's claim to fame is that all the exterior shots from the film School of Rock is actually Wagner. So there's that. All right. That's a fun fact for y'all to drop if you're fans of the film School of Rock, which I am. Junior became a chemist in college and graduated and took up a job with Allied Chemical, which was just a short jog away. But I want to pause here and talk to you about graduating from school. Because, well, it's that time of year. Because, well, I didn't have enough material. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not really that time of year, but that time of year just passed. Well, by the time know. by the time this comes out, no, it I will be a, like mid. I have a whole speech. <sighs> Hit us with that postgraduate knowledge. Well, graduation is in the air. This just so happens. Or it was in the air a month ago. This just so happens to mark another year in which I was not invited to give a commencement address in person. Where would you want to be giving one? Anywhere. <laughs> but I know what the people want, and so I will give a commencement address here for all you that may be celebrating your own graduation this season. And so, without further ado... We're sorry, John. Or at least I'm sorry, John. This week's Graduating with RJ. Friends. Romans. Countrymen. Sponsors. I thank you all. We don't have any of those. None none of any of that list. Especially our sponsors. (laughs) Which we have. Oh, you got some time to get some. Please sponsor us. I thank you all for this opportunity to address all of you. Four score and seven years ago, it was 1932. That was a very important time in somebody's life. Anyway, I know this is a big day for you. And I never dreamed, never, ever, ever dreamed that I would be a commencement speaker. Never, ever. My first job as your commencement speaker is to illustrate that life is not fair. For example... You have worked tirelessly for years to earn a diploma you'll be receiving today 
And universities give those diplomas out to minor celebrities for nothing all the time. This is true. Deal with it. Another example that life is not fair. When it rains, the powerful rich people get people to hold umbrellas for them. You get wet. How long, how long does this go on for? As you grow, you'll realize the definition of success changes. For many of you today, success is being able to hold down 20 shots of tequila. Like Megan. I can't. What do you mean? I can't hold down two shots of tequila. If I could hold down 20 shots of tequila, I think that'd still be impressive today. Especially with my old person organs. For me, the most important thing in your life is to live your life with integrity and not give in to peer pressure unless I'm telling you to do it. Like following the tenets of RJ. <laughs> Don't you give in to peer should do pre- that. Don't give in to peer pressure unless I peer pressure you into having integrity. But enough about schools. Let's talk about the real world for a moment. I don't really know how to put this, so I'll be blunt. It's broken, Megan. I'm sorry, graduates, but this world, where you aren't allowed to use your cell phone in airplanes, during live theater, at the movies, at funerals, or even during your own elective surgery, apparently the Berlin Wall went back up because we now live in Russia. Uh, Okay, listening to your commencement speech isn't supposed to make students dumber. I believe it was Shakespeare who said it best. Do you want to use your phone during elective surgery? Yeah. Why? So I could record it. It's 2019, baby. Anyway, I believe it was Shakespeare who said it best when he said, Look yonder into the darkness for knowledge, unto which I say, Go unto that which thou possess into thy night, for thee have come only a single sword, and vanquish thee into darkness. I'm going to be honest with you. I just made that up. Yeah, I, I could tell... Because it didn't make any fucking sense. Thank you, good night, and good luck. And everyone has stopped listening. Congratulations. Congratulations, everyone. Back to the life of one Paul <laughs> Jr. After working at Allied Chemical for about six months, he decided that was not for him. And he moved back to Tottenville. And he taught at Tottenville High School for the next ten years. The man was dedicated to his hood, if nothing else. Even though he taught chemistry and physics, he was still interested in writing stage plays. When he was 28, he wrote the aforementioned The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds, a play in which a single mom and her two daughters try to cope with the life of 20th century morass. Eventually, the play became a pretty successful hit. It had a run on Broadway in 1971 and was adapted into a major motion picture directed by Newman's own Paul Newman. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that was funny. Fuck, he was 28 when he wrote that? Yeah. God. Yeah. All these fucking authors just making making me feel so inadequate. All in all, Junior would write 53 books. He generally wrote for a teen audience. Most of them were at least semi-autobiographical. The stories focused on neglectful parents and misfit kids. Now, we know Paul Sr. was a dick who ran away with his mistress. Why would Paul be critical of Betty Sr.? other than for the naming shenanigans, which some say is the biggest sin of all. Some would. Namely, you. (laughs) I'm some. Well, apparently she was duped into get-rich-quick schemes again and again and again, despite the juniors telling her to stop. This saw her work odd jobs like a hat check girl, shipyard worker, dog breeder, and hot dog vendor. She also decided that boarding terminally ill patients at home was a good idea, And that allowed her to train as a nurse. And she decided this was a suitable way to be a nurse. (laughs) So can you imagine being a kid coming home from school, finding a hospice patient in your bed, and mom being like, oh, sweetie, 
This is Mildred. Don't worry, she'll be dead soon. Dinner at five. I'm learning hospice on my own. Junior's works usually had some pretty zany names. For example, my darling, my hamburger. What I call Megan sometimes. (laughs) Confessions of a teenage baboon. The pig man. Or what we're covering today. Pardon me, you're stepping on my eyeball. His stuff was generally pretty dark, focusing on themes of loneliness, loss, and the effects of abuse. For example, My Darling, My Hamburger deals with abuse, teenage pregnancy, and the light-hearted romp known as abortion. Da-da-da-da-da-da. The Pigman, which I think I might have read in elementary or middle school. There's no way you were reading The Pigman in elementary school. It's some (laughs) dark shit. Because it sounds really familiar, is not only one of the most assigned readings, but also has been one of the most banned books as well. Zendel said of the ban and the critics who wanted it banned, quote, I ignore critics usually. I believe the perfect story is a dream. The story is about the times and struggles of one Angelo Pignati, a man whose prized possessions are statues of pigs. The book has been challenged because it uses a bunch of potty words. So naughty and transgressive. (laughs) Junior married Bonnie Hildebrand in 1973. The two created two children, novelist Elizabeth Zendel and son David, a publisher. Junior died of lung cancer in 2003 and was buried in Moravian Cemetery, Staten Island. This means Junior is part of the 40% of Americans who literally never move away from their hometown. Staten Island, cradle to the grave. Now, I do want to point out, Zendel, while he was alive, created a paulzendel.com. He had his own website. Much like S.E. Hinton. Still up. You can access it. One thing, this guy was hot. I'm about it. At me. All right, to be fair, I didn't look any further than the Wikipedia page for his picture, and he he's sort of bald and vaguely distinguished looking. Are there, like, young hot pictures of him? Or are you just into that daddy look? Yeah, I'm into that one. The best part of this website, there's a message board. The people who go on paulzendel.com to opine about paulzendel novels are a strange group. There were a number of threads where people just don't understand the endings of books. Or they say things like, I wish I knew how this book ended. The books have endings. <laughs> I don't know what happened. And the problem is, they, the last time most of these people posted was 2007. So I can't really ask them and be like, did you ever find the last 10 pages of the book? Because I'm worried for them. <laughs> they don't know how the books ended. And I don't know why they don't know. Why'd they stop? There's not like a, a little addendum that's like, oh no, the last 10 pages of the book got burned away. Now, to be fair though, what we're saying, this this book has what I would honestly call kind of a, an unsatisfying ending. So maybe that's, maybe he just wrote books that have uh, Inception-like endings and people are like, I just wish I knew. That was a majority of the post. Interesting. The end. Check out the pictures for fat material. That's my recommendation. <sighs> yeah, recommendation is jerk off to Paul Zendel. Look, if you're a recent grad. <laughs> if you're a recent grad in the world, in this modern world, go jerk off to pictures of Paul Zendel. That's not even the weirdest thing we've said on this show, which is sad. Hey there, everybody, it's Megan. I don't, I don't know why I'm bringing that kind of energy to it. That <laughs> Hey, don't touch that dial. It's a podcast, and I'm coming at you with uh, some, some brief housekeeping and also uh, shout-outs to... Uh, I, can't, I can't maintain that. It's like midnight. Pff, that's what I have to say about that. Pff.
You know what else I have to say? Thank you to the wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons who help support each and every episode of Ono Lit Class and keep the show going, including two of our newest patrons, Kristen and Kathleen. And then to our, our non-patrons as well, anybody who, uh, you know, spreads the word and keep, keep grows the, the thing, shoot, shoots the... Wow. You know what I mean. I hope you guys are enjoying this kind of special episode. And if you're not, it's John's fault. He's in our Facebook group. You can find him. T- take it up with him. Nah, but I... I it's, it's good. It's good. It's good. Don't worry about it. It's awesome. The only kind of big announcement for this episode is that uh, we've got one more regular episode after this one, and then we will be taking a brief hiatus. Just just a little little breaky break, because we don't we don't do that very often or ever. So it's it's gonna be it's gonna be like a month. You you won't even notice we're gone really. So we'll probably be back either the end of July or the beginning of August. Probably the beginning of August as you you go back to school and we service all of your literature needs. Yeah, we need a break. Before that happens, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. Okay. So part part of me, you're stepping on my eyeball. As it is step stepped on, which also doesn't really have much to like do with the book proper. Like the phrase is introduced maybe twice, I think, and it's never really integrated into the book. But uh, whatever. So our two protagonists are fifteen-year-olds Lewis Marsh Mello. He prefers to be called Marsh, and uh, Edna Shinglebox. The names of the, like, all the names of this book are fucking fantastic. That's, uh, just want to get that out of the way right at the gate. So, Marsh is a Holden Caulfield for the contemporary 70s teen of today. Today being 1976, when this book was published. (laughs) Was Holden Caulfield not the teen of the 70s? When did you think Catcher in the Rye, a book that we covered, was published? He seemed like a pretty timeless character. When was Catcher in the Rye published? Who wrote it? I can't tell if you're fucking with me right now. You're fucking with me. No, who wrote that one? No, you're doing, you're doing a bit. <laughs> was that not Bradbury? Holy shit! Who wrote that one? Catcher in the Rye. Jay- Sal Salinger. Holy fuck. Yeah, so he wrote that around the 70s. No! He recently died. What are you talking about? He didn't write around this. Oh my god! All right, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this on here because our listeners deserve to know how fucking dumb you are that this is something I have to deal with on the reg. Okay, so J.D. Salinger did die in 2010. Right, recently. Yeah, it's fairly recently. Uh, however, Catcher in the Rye was published in 1951. Right, and so the kids. In the 70s, we're reading the books published in the 50s because it was famous at that I'm going, point. That's not a story about a kid in the... This is a story about kids in the 70s. This is a story about kids in the 50s. Don't try to... Right, like... but the kids in the 70s would have no, looked up a, to Holden Caulfield. No, this is a Caulfield. stupid argument. No. Yes. Oh. All I said was like, this is easy. He is the Holden Caulfield for, for what at the time then was contemporary times. Yeah, but... Like, the, the kids, times the kids were living in. Yeah, but Holden Caulfield, he was more of a 70s guy, trust me. No. Yeah. You're dumb and full he of... Loved, you know, you're, he you're, loved the drugs and he loved the hat. You are fucking dumb and should stop talking. No. Every kid in the 70s had that hat. Every kid in the <laughs> 70s had that hat? Yes. How do you know? My parents told me. 
You know what? You're not allowed to say words anymore because all the words you say are dumb. So yeah, Marsh is a Holden Caulfield for the late 70s. Right down to thinking he's smarter than everyone else, calling people phonies, constantly lying, and desperately trying to avoid confronting past trauma. It's kind of a pretty uh, transparent Holden Caulfield. Uh, he also carries a baby raccoon in his pocket because he's quirky. Get, you want to know what the raccoon's name is? Here, try, try and guess the raccoon's name. Miko. Nope. That's that's from Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah. It's weird that you remember that. Rocky. Nope. Bullwinkle. No. Boris. No. You give up. Sure. Raccoon. There you go. <laughs> Unlike Holden, though, who can't seem to make that final leap towards making a human connection, Marsh singles out the awkward, emotional Edna, deciding that she's the perfect person to help him. Help him with what? It's kind of involved. So the, the novel opens with Marsh writing 10 things that he hates. And he hates a lot of things. Are they all about you? No. They're, they're all about his teachers, the government, his, his mom, uh, the fact that his dad needs him and he can't get to him. And then he tries to write things that he likes, which include octopi and red ants. So his parents, uh, he refers to by their first names, are Paranoid Pete and Schizo Susie. Uh, this is the 1970s. There's going to be a lot of shit that has not aged well. And one of those is how the book kind of deals with and confronts issues of mental health. So his mother is definitely has a mental illness. Whether or not it's actually schizophrenia remains to kind of be seen. But she's definitely like kind of struggling with a mental health disorder. And she's abusive. She's not great. She gets drunk all the time and says things to Marsh like she wishes he'd never been born. But also the book just shits on her and calls her like a worthless idiot. Which is kind of in line with some of the stuff you were telling me. Uh, and so uh, Marsh says that his dad, Paranoid Pete, who used to take Marsh and run off with him and like abandon the mom. Change their geography. On, uh, yeah, and, and on random adventures to Canada, Florida, California. So there's like some weird kind of like wish fulfillment stuff there, I guess, huh? Like I wish dad took me with him. But now he is locked up in a psych ward in California. And sending Marsh letters about how he's, like, scared he's gonna, like, get a lobotomy and stuff. And he tells Marsh, like, at the end of the letter, don't let anyone step on your eyeball. And that's kind of the most we get of that. But, uh... Don't want him to take the front of your brain either. Well, yes. Uh, we meet Edna Shinglebox with her parents uh, in a meeting with the school psychiatrist, or guidance counselor, I guess. I don't know. One of those things. Mr. Meisner. Mr. Meisner is fat. How <laughs> fat is he? So fat that it's the only thing Zendel really talks about. <laughs> Apart from the fact that he's kind of a dick and might not actually know what he's doing, he's just so fat. He's the fattest. He eats uh, pork rinds and caviar and sour cream together. <laughs> and and just, he can't bring him up without talking about how fat he is. Like, and he strolled to the class fatly <laughs> and made a fat pronouncement. Like, oh, so it's, it's, a thin it's really bad. <laughs> so it's a thin guy writing fat characters. Zendel's mm. 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 got an axe to grind with a few archetypes and people. Fat people? And things like that. It seems that way, yes. <laughs> Although this seems like there, there had to have been some kind of school guidance counselor counselor that hurt him the way that Mr. Meisner is portrayed. So Edna's there with her parents and they're like 
freaking out about the fact that Edna can't get a boyfriend. That just her mother is kind of insane and talking about how they got her daughter like plastic surgery and they pinned her ears back and they did all these things to make her more desirable. But they can't change the fact that she's such a weirdo on the inside. All of the parents in the book are like just huge, exaggerated generally incompetent if not outright abusive uh characters and i guess that's kind of in this theme of like you can't you can't trust parents you can't trust adults i agree (laughs) you are an adult no i'm not (laughs) you're a teacher and yeah you're a child teacher yeah (laughs) like doogie has but yeah so edna edna doesn't like putting up with this shit and she just kind of doesn't know how to deal with people she cries a lot and she's like, but that's okay. People cry. It's, it's not a, a big deal. Who doesn't cry? <laughs> she has dreams about, like, r- middle-aged women running after her screaming. And it's just like, this might have to do with my mom, but eh, who knows? Who doesn't have those dreams? Uh, when she's working on the school newspaper with uh, her friend Jacqueline. Jacqueline's, like, gushing about how she went to this psychic named Miss Amy for a reading who said, like, you will meet a beautiful boy. And uh, she started dating this football player, Butch Ontok, who Edna can clearly tell only wants Jacqueline for her money because Jacqueline is very rich. This will this will come into play later. How rich is she? She, she, very, she lives in, like, the wealthiest, like, biggest house in town, and it's a big glass house. It's entirely made out of glass. Then she's allowed to cast the first stone. Wow. That's and, simple, wasn't baby? Baby. So Marsh and Edna end up in this special group therapy class that Mr. Meisner creates with them and um, a bunch of other kids who are deemed to have emotional problems, two of which are gay, as we find out. Like, he doesn't say it, like, sort of out. It's just that one, one is a girlish boy and the other is a boyish girl, and they both end up, you know, dating people of, like, the same gender or whatever. Uh, although that, it's shown as a positive thing. It's shown that, like, that's how they're, like, getting better, that they're accepting their identities and things like that. But anyway, they're both pretty pissed to have to be in there because, of course, they think there's nothing uh, wrong with them. And most of the things Mr. Meisner has them do is insane. So... Um, How insane is it? Please stop. <laughs> well, first, uh, I gotta say that that Marsh corners Edna at lunch, and she thinks that he's a weirdo because 90% of what he does is go on and on about how him and his father go on all these adventures and all these women want to fuck them. And that he's just, he's just drowning in puss. Specifically, him and his dad are drowning in puss. It's really weird that how often it's just like, yeah, me and my dad hang out and just score hot babes all the time. And Edna's just like, you talk about your dad way too much, dude. That's kind of weird. He's my wingman. (laughs) But then they, so the first thing that Mr. Meisner has them do is put on blindfolds and he rearranges them so they don't know who they're sitting in front of. And he's like, touch each other's faces. Reach out and touch a new face. This is good for you. This will help. And so that's- Your nose is so swollen. It's weird. Uh what? What? Is that supposed to be a dick thing? Why would your nose be down there? Like, you still have spatial awareness. You hop on a chair. So, Mar- Marsh and Edna are, are around each other. And actually, at first, Edna's just like, what am I touching? This feels like a hairy golf ball, I believe is a specific term used. And it's because Marsh took out Raccoon and she was touching it. <laughs> but then they touch each other's faces and they have like a moment. And then she actually feels it. Marsh cry a little, like a tear go down his face. And he whispers to her that... No, he doesn't go on awesome adventure, awesome puss scouting adventures with his dad because his dad is currently in a psych ward on the other side of the country because this does take place in New York City. Potentially Staten Island? I don't, I don't know enough to 
actually know. They might say it outright. So after that, he meets up with her again at lunch, and he says, I need you to help rescue my dad. And he is like, here, you you have to read this letter. And he gives her this like huge stack of, of a letter talking about to it, it's supposedly from marsh's dad and it's just like this very long diatribe about the government and everyone being a, a phony and just weird shit and it's obvious marsh wrote it like this was clearly written by a child and edna's just like well that's kind of weird but sure okay marsh is like yes you have to come with me and i'm going to tell you more i'll pick you up at 8 30 and she's just like um i don't know what's happening and her mom's just like oh you finally got a date and she's like, I don't, I don't think that's what this is. Close enough. <laughs> it counts. And he, he takes her out to this, like, private bar that honestly sounds really fucking amazing. It's called the Magic Elephant. And that you go into, like, this really small, like, study-like room. And it, it, you have to, there's a little elephant statuette. And you have to say hi to it. And the bookcase swings open. And there's, like, a speakeasy inside. And it has all of these little, like, gimmicks and stuff like that. And it sounds pretty cool. How two 15-year-olds are able to just go in there and order alcohol, I don't know. But it was the 70s. Maybe that happened all the time. So Marsh explains that Edna's gonna, like, help him, help his father escape. I don't know why Edna is gonna do that, but Marsh is convinced that she's, like, different from everyone else. Because and Edna... she struggles with ennui. It <laughs> gives her something to do. Yeah, I mean, his whole thing is she looks like she's just as, uh, I think the quote is, freaky and depressed as he is. Yeah, man. Freaky and depressed. They are both really depressed, um, but they have pretty good reasons to be. Like, Edna's parents, or at least her mom, her dad is just kind of doing whatever. Edna's mom is just a a controlling, passive-aggressive helicopter parent, and Marsh's mom is abusive, and his dad is not there. Although, he talks about casual, like, very casually about how when his dad was there, he would abuse both him and his mom. Like, he would hit both of them. But he's just kind of like, yeah, this was just something that happened. And it made me better. And my mom definitely needed to be smacked around. And it's weird because I'm not sure how the book wants us to interpret this. Like, and the story's written in the third person, so we don't have, like, that kind of thing with Holden where it's an unreliable narrator. Because the book kind of lets us know early on that, like, that A, Marsh lies all the time. And that most of the things he says aren't true. And that he's dealing with something, like, of trauma that's sort of buried very deep. But... The novel's very ambivalent about the, like, casual abuse and misogyny. And so it's kind of hard to tell if it's just Marsh not knowing any better that this is not, like, normal. Or if the book's just kind of like, well, this is a thing, all right. So I don't know how to quite interpret that. After they're at the bar and they drink and, like, Edna's like, oh, I actually had, like, a pretty decent time. Marsh takes Edna to his house and his house is kind of scary. His mom is passed out asleep on the floor and he takes her upstairs and he makes her read another letter that's even longer and just, it's just word salad. It's just completely bizarre. It reads like a, like a manifesto, but it doesn't make any sense. And I ended up just sort of skimming through it because it just goes on. And it's like, Zindel, you, ma- you made your point. This I kid, got it. This, I got gotcha. you. This kid should have found a creative writing circle. Yeah, really. Well, he's he's convinced that these letters are from his father, even though Edna notes later, with much, much too later, really, that they're in Marsh's handwriting. You mean you don't write like your father does? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's real weird, and Edna just feels super uncomfortable. And one of the things that 
is in the letter talks about how they went out somewhere and Marsh's dad is like, remember I bought you that three-stage American flag rocket that it's supposed to explode and, and make the American flag? And she's like, is that real? And he has it under his bed. And she's like, well, hmm, maybe this whole thing is real. He has the rocket. It's true. <laughs> That's proof. Yeah, and then she goes home and cries because Edna does that a lot. She doesn't have the rocket. And she wants to love America too. And damn it, her parents never bought her the American rocket. She literally stays home from school because, like, this whole encounter just upset her so much. I stayed home when I didn't have a rocket, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every time I stayed home, I didn't have a rocket. <laughs> it's not. You're not wrong. Get me a rocket. Marsh tries to, like, keep calling Edna because it's funny. Like, she was so upset and she's like, this was so weird and I never want to do it again and it was so bad. And then, like, immediately the next chapter flips to Marsh's perspective because it goes back and forth. Sometimes within the same chapter. And Marsh is just like... That was great. That went awesome. Edna's great. She's going to help me help my dad. Like, they, they both had very different uh, perspectives of this. So, while Edna's upset, uh, she kind of has this moment where she's looking at herself in the mirror and she's like, I'm sick of being, like, this person who just goes along with things and doesn't, like, speak their mind and just is, like, this little mousy person. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to be honest with people. I'm going to be, like, a stronger person. And because of that, she's like, I'm going to tell Marsh off for whatever the hell this was because the thing about his dad is fake and she thinks he did it to fuck with her. So she uh, confronts him at school. She yells at him for being a liar and Marsh is just like, why don't you want to help my dad? Like, why are you being like this? And then when she does call him a liar, he completely flips shit and starts screaming like, I'm not a liar! And has to be carted off by like school security. And that's when Edna's like, okay, clearly there's something more going on here. <laughs> this goes a little deeper than a prank. He gets cooler all the time. He's so dreamy. Yeah, that's, yeah, um. Girls like the bad boy. I've she, seen enough movies, I know. She did, that does kind of end up happening. Edna goes to Marsh's house because she, she kind of wants to. She's just so aroused. Well, she wants to apologize because she feels weird about it because it clearly upset him. Um, and before that, she tried to ask Mr. Meisner what was up, like what the story really was with Marsh's dad. And Mr. Meisner fatly tells her that it's none of her business because he's the school psych and he's not just going to go around divulging patients' information. And then he, he yells at her and she's like, you're being real grouchy. And he's like, I'm in ketosis. Really? <laughs> yes. Man, the diet really took off. <laughs> it's such, it's so weird. So, uh, Marsh isn't home, but his mom, who is just solely ever referred to as Schizo Susie, she is not called anything else. Uh, she is extremely creepy in this scene that she, she uh, cause she's like, hey, you know, Marsh isn't here. Um, can I ask you about his dad? You know, if his dad's around, she's like, oh, you want to meet Marsh's dad? He's here. He's upstairs. And she's like, uh, is he asleep? Kind of. He's in Marsh's room. And Edna's like, okay. And the whole time she thinks she's going to get murdered. And, uh, his mom leads her up and she's like, he's right here. And she reaches under the bed and there's an urn and it has his dad's name on it. And there's a date inscription that shows he's been dead for about a year. So it's single schizo Susie. Yes. Whoa. Oh. You hear that, man? <laughs> She's available. And then she has, like, this sort of heel turn and starts, like, screaming really rude things at Edna and chases her out of the house. Like I said, something is wrong with Marsh's mom, but it's it's kind of just like a, whoa, she's so crazy. It's, it's not great. So after that situation, Edna realizes she's by the psychic that Jacqueline told her about, uh, Miss Amy. And she's like, well, I'm here. 
All the other adults in my life have failed me. Let's give this a try. And so she goes into the psychic and, man, that's a scene, all right. Her whole house stinks. She's got like six German shepherds and uh, she's really, she's really grouchy and kind of mean. And she is reading Edna's palm. And as she is reading Edna's palm, Edna's having a hard time paying attention because (laughs) there's a giant cockroach crawling out of Miss Amy's very much exposed cleavage. And it is such a, it's such a weird scene. It's got like heavy David Lynch vibes because she's just watching this cockroach and she's like, do I say something? Do I say there's a fucking cockroach on your body? Is it just sort of wanders around? It goes behind her ear. It goes under her chin. And and it's just like everything about this is awful. Never mention the chicken. (laughs) Don't talk about the chicken. No one's going to get that joke. No one saw Missing Link. But yeah, anyway, at first, Miss Amy tries to kind of give her a line of like, you're going to meet a boy and he's going to solve all your problems. And she's like, that is not what I'm here for. And she kind of explains the whole story about Marsh and how he's writing his own letters from his dad and he's just in denial and what, you know, that she wants to help him. That's the thing. She really does want to help him. She wants to be friends with this kid because she also does see that they are kind of broken in the same way. Now, here's the thing. Those have become my least favorite words. Could it be possible? Could it be possible? That because he keeps the ashes under his bed, Dad's spirit sneaks out at night, goes into his body, and so it's in Marsh's handwriting because Dad uses Marsh as a vessel. And talks about being locked up in a psych ward in California. Yeah. That's what he remembers last. <laughs> ah. Like the dead can't create new memories. Nope. They just have their old energy. As that we hangs as we around. find out, that was not a memory that ever actually existed. So after she tells the psychic the whole story, the psychic is just like, well, this is a bigger problem, but I think I can help you. And she actually drops some some useful knowledge. She talks about a librarian that used to come to her who was in denial that her own mother was dead. And that after various sessions, like the psychic figured out that she had this whole weird guilt thing going on because she was writing a book while her mother was dying and then her mother died and then she felt like she should have spent more time with her mom and the book bombed and she said, you know, you got to do this ritual. Then that's, that's how you like fix this. And so I told her, go to your mom's grave and bury your book there. And then she was able to admit it. So she's like, you have to do something like that with this boy. Also, you're going to fall in love with him. (laughs) And so Edna's like, that second part is bullshit, but I'm first one that makes sense except then like the more she's sort of thinking about it the more she's like maybe i do like him hmm and uh meanwhile marsh is back to writing hate lists and edna is on the list several times and uh is in study hall and edna goes over to him and is like hey like i want to apologize i want to be your friend i want to help you and then she sees the list and she's just like wow dick and marsh is just like i have feelings i hate you and then they go to the they go back to that fucking group therapy class they're all in and mr meisner makes them do like that light as a feather stiff as a board thing yeah where like all the the kids pick you up yeah it always makes you think of the craft that's the only like context i have for that so he makes them like pick edna up and carry her around and the whole time she's like i don't like this i don't like this and he's like throw her up in the air she's a bubble of joy and it's just you're reading it you're just like this is fucking insane but uh at the end of this jacqueline invites all of the class oh yeah jacqueline's also in the group therapy thing because she's suicidal uh but she invites everyone in class to a party that she's throwing at her house while her parents aren't there 
And we learn later on when they're both working on the school newspaper that Jacqueline is really uncomfortable about the party and she's only throwing it because Butch is making her. And then to finally speaks up and is like, this seems like it sucks. Like you don't want to do this and he's making you and I don't think he actually cares about you. And Jacqueline gets angry. Because he's on the football team. And it's just supposed to be the kids from the therapy group, the football team, and their girlfriends. And then Butch is also like, also, I'm bringing a weird evangelist kid from a commune in Massachusetts. Everyone just calls him God Boy. It's gonna be real fun. It's very weird. (laughs) So Edna goes to the party and she helps Jacqueline make food because Butch has demanded uh, there be veal cutlet grinders, buffet style. (laughs) And Edna's written this whole letter to Marsh saying like, I care about you and actually really like you and I'm just really bad with feelings and I want to be your friend and I want to help you with your dad and blah, blah, blah. And then Marsh shows up to the party with this girl named Norma Jean, who is apparently just like a known slut. Um, This book is also really, really preoccupied with what girls are slutty and which ones aren't, which is- Just like life is. I mean, you're not wrong, but they are 15. And, and, yes. Yeah, and Marsh clearly brought her there to make Edna jealous, and Edna tears the letter up, and, like, she knows that he's doing this, uh, because they're not doing anything, and then every time she looks, Marsh is suddenly like, oh, Norma, and, like, touching her all over, and Norma is completely disinterested. And so Edna starts, like, getting into a conversation with a weird stoner kid from the commune to uh, make Marsh jealous, Oh, yeah, all the commune kids are weird. They're all stoners, and you can tell Zendel's got, like, a very anti-hippie agenda, and they, like, flood the house and, like, just start taking things and eating all the food and destroying stuff, and there's way more people at the party. And Jacqueline is just kind of miserable, and they light, like, a massive candelabra that the commune kids just brought themselves. And so it's it's getting kind of out of hand. Everybody's getting high. Godboy goes up and gives a sermon that is, again, word salad. And I don't know why it's in the book. It has no consequence. Like, the stoner kids, the whole weird commune kids, have no bearing on the plot whatsoever. Like, what happens afterwards, immediately afterwards, has nothing to do with anything. They could have taken him out. It's it's just weird. Like, I, I don't know if it's supposed to be a, a commentary on religion or, like, hippies and pseudo-religion. Like, there's a lot going on about, like, consumerism and politics in the novel, which makes sense. It was in the 70s. Like, there's a lot of politics to be had. At one point, they are in D.C. I'm going to talk about it in a second. They drive by the Watergate Hotel and Marsh screams at it. As one does. As one but anyway, does. as for the hippies, it's like 70. Sometimes hippies show up, sometimes they disappear. Sometimes you, you just kind of live with them. There they are, free love and such. Whenever the kids try to, like, think of something or are recollecting something, like, their point of reference is, like, TV commercials a lot, which is interesting. It's like a little commentary on advertising and commercialism or whatever, which is kind of a lot for a, a YA novel about 15-year-olds. So anyway... it's just a bad party it's just a weird bad party and then norma gets bored with marsh and starts hanging out with other guys and they're in the hot tub and marsh is on the second floor terrace and he throws off his jacket because raccoon is still in the pocket and he jumps from the fourth story into the pool and and the thinks he might have died and he just pops out of the water and starts punching the boys that are in the hot tub with norma and one of them picks up a flower pot and is going to bash him in the head, and then is like, duck, and he ducks. So the flower pot crashes through one of the glass walls, hits the candelabra, and oopsie-daisy flower pot, the house is now on fire. (laughs) And everyone's stoned. So apparently they just run around going, the house is on fire! 
Glass doesn't burn. Until it burns down. No, glass can't burn down. There's furniture in the house. Right, but the glass will still stand. <laughs> Maybe should have got furniture made of glass. Yeah, that sounds comfy. Yeah. Let me chill out on this glass couch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you're saying yeah to me like that's the viable option. It is. a nice firm couch. It's good for your back. Good for posture. And then Edna realizes that Raccoon is still up there on the terrace where Marsh left him, and I've kind of downplayed Raccoon's role in this story because of what happens next, but he's fucking cute, and Zindel goes out of his way to show us just how fucking cute this thing is. He's always eating cookies and making cute faces, and he's like Marsh's only friend because Marsh is socially weird, and Edna watches Raccoon burn to death. Oh, time out. When I put food on the stove, you don't say I'm burning it to death you're barbecuing the raccoon no that's not funny it's very traumatizing no it's not it's food (laughs) food no you're a dick and a monster what Uh, do you mean yeah raccoons are good it's a pet you've never eaten a raccoon in your life raccoons are intelligent animals so are cows it's true but you can't keep a cow in your pocket depends on the size (laughs) of the cow and the size of the pocket But yeah, so that happens, and it's horrible, and then we go back to Marsh's perspective, and he's running around looking for Raccoon, and he's convinced himself, like, yeah, no, this is good, he's fine, he's smart, he's a smart animal, I'm sure he's like, you know, he's out of the house, or maybe someone grabbed him, it's fine, and everyone's running away because the police are now there, because the house is on fucking fire, and he runs into Edna, and he asks if she's seen Raccoon, and she's like, oh yeah, he, uh, he ran off into the forest somewhere. And uh, Marsh drives away, and he sees Edna walking further down, and he picks her up, and she gets in the car. And then they get into a fight, and then he hits her a bunch. This is this is kind of the most egregious part, because it is absolutely played like it is not that big a deal. Like, Marsh feels kind of bad. Like, yeah, I guess hitting's bad, but if he feels equally bad that he's crying. So, like, these are, these are, like, the same level of bad crying, punching a girl in the face repeatedly. And Edna's fine. Edna bears him no ill will. Because after that, while he's crying, he says, you have to help me. Like, please, 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 you have to help me. And she's just like, all right, I'll do that. Never mind that he just punched her in the fucking face a bunch. And we're just supposed to be chill with it. There's never a moment of like, I'm sorry I hit you. That was wrong. Whether or not Paul Zendel himself encourages punching your potential romantic partner, or even just your friend, in the face... He doesn't do anything to say, like, this was a bad action. It just, it, it really sticks out. Should have punched back. She should have punched back. Right the, in the eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, you're punching me in the eyeball. So, so she agrees, and she goes home, and after her parents are asleep, she packs a suitcase, and gets in the car with Marsh. So this is all the same night. And they just start driving. He's like, we're going to drive to California and we're going to help my dad. And she's like, there is no way we are going to get to California in time. Because he says, you know, oh, it's like the next day or something that is going to happen. She's like, I don't think you know how distance works. So they make it to DC and they drive past the various landmarks and Marsh screams at all of them because they're all, they're all crooks and phonies. Even and, the MLK one? I don't know. They don't mention that one specifically. Trick. Didn't exist yet. Oh. I don't know things. And then they keep saying, like, don't drive so fast, don't drive so fast. And Marsh is, like, falling asleep at the wheel. And he's like, nah, I took no dose. It's all good. It's all good. And then he gets them in a car accident. Like, he just completely destroys the car. And they manage to kind of, like, wiggle out. And, again, Edna's not that upset at him. She's just kind of like, well, you wrecked your car and almost killed us both. Let's continue, shall we? They start hitchhiking. 
Uh, no, they run because the cops are go to the wreck to figure out what's going on. Um, and they make it to a bridge and they're standing there and Marshall has a suitcase, but there's a big hole in it and the urn falls out. And Edna's like, all right, maybe this is it. Maybe this can be the ritual. This could be the moment. And so she picks up the urn and she kind of puts it on the railing of the bridge and leaves it there and is looking at him like, huh? 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 And Marsh is just like not reacting. And she scoots it closer to the edge and is like, ah? Ah? And Marsh is still not reacting. And she's finally like, all right, fine. And she poof. And the urn falls into the water. And she's like, okay, maybe this solved the problem. But it didn't. Marsh is just not talking. He's just like completely shut down. And they continue to attempt to run from the cops and they run into a cemetery. And okay, is JFK buried at Arlington? I believe okay. so. So, so the cemetery they run into is Arlington. They never say that, but uh, as they're trying to evade the police, they come upon JFK's grave. And there's this sort of weird moment where Marsh is like, "Yeah, I guess JFK wasn't too bad, but it sucks that they had him killed," <laughs> which is just sort of a weird thing. And Edna has this realization of like, okay, pushing the urn into the water didn't work. This was not the moment of catharsis. So she's like, do you still have the rocket? And he does. And so they take it out and they need a light in. She's like, do you have a match? And he's like, no, but- JFK has an eternal flame. (laughs) He sure does. (laughs) And so she rips a piece of paper off of like a book she had with her. And she's like, let's write down, let's write down something we hate. Write down like the one biggest thing that you hate. And we're going to light it on fire with the eternal flame and we're going to light the rocket. So those might be the missing pages that people missed out on on the other Paul Zindel novels. Potentially. So she writes down on the page, I hate that I can't tell you how much I like you. And Marsh writes down. Especially when you punch me in the face. Seriously. And Marsha writes down, I hate that my dad is dead. And so we finally have that moment of acknowledgement. So she takes the pieces of paper, she lights them on fire, she lights the rocket, and it explodes into the sky and makes the American flag. And then the book ends. Yeah. And that's probably why people are like, uh, because where the fuck are they going to go from there? What's going to happen? I know you don't need to, I I complain about that on here, that it's like, you don't always have to tie everything in a neat bow, but it's like, I'd like something a little more what's the word like final like the the story doesn't feel like it's quite over like we get the moment of catharsis we get marsh acknowledging to himself that his dad is dead but they're still hiding out in arlington cemetery from the police edna's parents don't even know she ran away like what are they gonna do the 70s have a way of working themselves out the 80s happen the end some of it's cocaine so that's that's part of me. You're stepping on my eyeball. It's it's got a lot going on. Yeah, no, it's a lot. I mean, I I enjoyed it when I read it, um, and I think that's also partially because I'm an adult. I think reading it as a teen, I still would have liked it, but I wouldn't have been able to appreciate just how fucking weird it was. And some of that '70s slang is just out there. Oh, kitty cat. <laughs> also, it's really hung up. Oh, damn! I didn't bring the book in here. It's really hung up on like graffiti in the form of like weird jokes. It's like, they say Jesus saved, but he couldn't on my allowance. And calling Count Dracula, your Bloody Mary is ready. And something like, privatized murder. The government shouldn't have all the fun. Kilroy was here. Something like that. My bae. Your bae. So the novel has not been adapted into anything, which is a little surprising to me. Like, yeah, it's, it's pretty dark, but so is like Heathers and shit, you know? And even though it was published in 1976, it has kind of in my opinion like a very strong early 80s teen movie kind of energy 
Like, everything is just so exaggerated and chaotic and weird. It kind of reminds me of, like, 16 Candles, but much darker. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm surprised no one did anything with it. And I kind of feel like it's too late now. The book is, is very much a textbook example of being of its time, sensibility-wise, and also some of the very problematic shit that didn't age well. And even if you said it in 1976, I, I still don't think it would really work with, like, present-day sensibilities, if that makes sense. I think the issues in it would only be magnified as a film. I don't know. Those are my thoughts and feelings. That just leads us right into the the part of the show that we we always get to. Do hey, we? Yes, always. Always. Okay. Hey, RJ. So. So, I know you didn't read it, but you just basically got the uh, the Cliff's Notes of, pardon me, you're stepping on my eyeball. Is it good or bad? Well, here's the thing. The thing. The thing. The ever-loving blue-eyed thing. I'm anti the punching. As I would hope. <laughs> I'm pro the urn and the ashes. I don't know what that means. I still think it's possible for my thesis to be correct. Oh, that he's, he's being possessed by his dad? Yeah. Oh, yeah, shit. I and left so th- out the most important thing when, when she finds out how his dad died. Uh, they were in California, and he just got really loaded and then got hit by a bus. Mm. so he was never in a psych ward see then that's why when the urn got pushed into the water he was like frozen because the soul was leaving his body Ah. and we were coming back just to marsh and marsh alone i mean metaphorically speaking you're not wrong Uh, Uh, something to think about there uh i like using jfk's flames (laughs) and the firework (laughs) very american like you say this was never adapted but i would argue we're just living it man man that's what america is dead dads and domestic violence <laughs> i think that sums up about at least 10 of the 50 states <laughs> You're not wrong. oh i don't want to be laughing at domestic violence but that was pretty good hey megan yeah rj excuse you <laughs> My ball. You step on it. <laughs> Excuse you, my balls. You're stepping on them. Back <laughs> off. Your thoughts. Bad good, fuck. bad, or engorged. Gross. So the way that it takes like these huge... Look, Meg, go ahead, time out. Okay. Some people are into that kind of, you know, cock and ball torture. I Don't did... kink shame, I Meg. didn't. They're engorged. Yeah, I said you're gross for just using the word engorged. It's a gross word. It's like moist. Wrong. Or tumescent. I don't even know what the hell that means. <laughs> People usually refer to that in romance novels when talking about dick. Why? Because it means, like, the same thing as engorged, I'm pretty sure. You mean talk about your girth? Yeah, here, you, can, you can Google it real fast. Your wiener. I don't think you can, can you spell it. Too messy. Can you smell too... Or smell... Can you spell too... Can messy? you smell... What the rock is too messing. Swollen or becoming swollen. Yeah, see, I told you. Hmm. So the way it takes these huge over-the-top set pieces and characters and makes everything just so, like, completely wild while also presenting some really good thoughts about, um, you know, the nature of loss, grief, how kids cope with shit, how much being 15 sucks ass, and how you feel like you can't, you know, trust a lot of the adults around you, this is pretty solid. I'm loath to say it, but the exaggerated weirdness of it all reads extremely postmodern. 
Like, it's it's a lot of, uh, like, you know, with training wheels, because it's, it's for the kids, but that's a technique that a lot of postmodern novels use, is making everything, you know, magnifying it times a thousand in order to kind of try to make a point, and just making everyone act sort of really crazy. This is not a great definition of postmodernism, but... As we've said before, it's kind of impossible to get a great definition of postmodernism because postmodernism is stupid like that. Wrong. Bad take. Bad take. Yeah, you bad can take. elaborate? Well, someday we'll have an episode about philosophy. What does that have to do with postmodern novels? Bad take. Yeah, all right, good, good defense. It's a lot of fun to read, and large portions of it, though, like Marsh's rambling letters and Godboy's weird speech, are not particularly fun. They ramble. They're kind of dull. Zindel gets hung up on a lot of details of, like, naming all of these things and people and companies and stuff like that and giving them all very long, weird names. I mean, and it makes sense. Uh, a guy who writes titles like Pardon Me, You're Stepping on My Eyeball and The Effects of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigold is going to be a wordy dude who likes coming up with wordy names for things. Megan would say that's not a title, it's a sentence. It's true, I would. Megan holds back our titles. So apart from the bits where it shows its age and is sort of wildly problematic, like I said, the ending is kind of disappointing. Like I want to see more from it, but I can definitely see reading this as a teen and being how, like being into how it's so different from like everything else kind of although i feel like you know when i was reading this stuff when i was like 12 or 13 some of it might have gone over my head for no other reason than like some of the weird fucking 70s slang but yeah i'll say for the most part good because it is interesting and it is different and even though the kids talk real weird because again 1970s their thoughts and feelings do feel like realistic and legitimate like they're dumb 15 year olds trying to cope with a lot of really heavy shit so yeah, uh, it's interesting. Check it out. Just, you know, with the caveat that a lot of shit doesn't uh, stand the test of time in it. So that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Class. If you like us, if you love us, if you're into what we do, then you can get that foot off our eyeball and onto the street to go tell everyone how much you love the show. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and, and Tumblr, and all of the things, and we have links to all of that at onolickclass.com, as well as a link to our Patreon, where you can vote on what episodes we do next. You can get bonus content, mini-sodes, t-shirts, bookmarks, stickers, and if you hit our substitute teacher tier, you can make us do episodes like this. And we even have a new tier. No, we don't. Where if you send in the correct amount of money, no. we will send you a rocket. What? Where if you light it with the eternal flame, it unlocks the special mode where when you shoot it into the sky, it'll say, I support Onova class. The next episode will be out on June 27th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Don't let anyone step on your eyeballs. <laughs>